Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. I think there is a part of me that still feels indignant or angry that there was like the notion that you have these people in the city who are like, oh, look, there's an owl. Isn't it cool? We're going to destroy all of your livelihoods in your community because we like this owl. This is one of those things where if you, if you make it less politics and more like, well, how do you actually just like keep animals alive and log the forest sustainably? You can do it. I'll also say a lot of the problems with manufacturing going abroad is also the problem of like artificially slow economic growth. And we're not in poverty now, but we're trying to be because we have so many of these terrible institution things and land use is right up near the top of that. All right, folks, very exciting episode today. Our guest on today's podcast is Carrick Flynn. If you've been following Oregon politics in the news, I would venture to say that Carrick has probably been, he's probably been in the news more than any other Oregon congressional candidate this cycle. I've got a couple headlines I'll read for you for additional context. So one from the Willamette Week. Independent expenditures for congressional candidate Carrick Flynn approached $6 million. I believe that's definitely the most of any independent expenditure campaign to support a candidate in Oregon by far. But I believe that that puts him at the top of the list nationally in terms of candidates being supported by super PACs, independent expenditures. And then the second newspaper headline, this is from OPB, is this. National Democrats appear to be picking a favorite in Oregon's new congressional district. What this was referring to is another super PAC, this one called the House Majority PAC, which is affiliated with the Congressional Democratic Leadership in D.C., is basically spending a million dollars so far to support Carrick in Oregon's new 6th Congressional District. So there's been a lot of talk about Carrick, who he is, why he's running, what his background is, and we cover all that in today's interview. So a little bit of background on Carrick before we jump into the interview. He grew up in Vernonia which is a timber town in Northwest Oregon. His family grew up in poverty and the flood that many of us remember from Vernonia impacted his family personally. So we talk a little bit about that. After that, he went to the University of Oregon on a Ford Family Foundation scholarship and then went to Yale Law School. He's lived all over the world. In fact, on his bio, you can see he's lived in Iberia, he's lived in India, Malaysia, Ethiopia, DC, the UK, Malaysia. So he's got a lot of international experience. And in terms of professional background, he's worked in artificial intelligence, biotechnology, pandemic prevention, and a lot of scientific fields like that. He's worked in the higher education world at universities and other post-secondary institutions doing some teaching as well. So we talk a lot about those issues. We also talk about some Oregon-specific issues like timber policy and what the federal government's role is. We talk about super PACs and his personal views on whether they should exist and why they, he believes that so many are supporting him in this race. We talk about inflation, some of the federal issues. Alex gets his foreign policy question in. We talk a little bit about China and microchips. And it's a really interesting conversation. So we hope you enjoy it. We hope it helps you get to know Carrick a little bit as he runs in the new 6th Congressional District, which for those of you who haven't been following too closely, Oregon got a new congressional district in the last redistricting. The 6th is the new one. It is a relatively competitive district. I just The, the most recent uh, analysis I saw was D plus 6, which means that Democrats would be expected in, a, in an average year to finish with six points more than the Republican candidate 
It's going to be a tough year for Democrats in 2022, as we've talked about. So this could be one of the closest congressional races in the country. It's a super competitive Democratic primary, lots of candidates. You've got Carrick Flynn, you've got Matt West, who we've talked to, two state representatives, Andrea Salinas and Teresa Alonso Leon, Dr. Kathleen Harder out of Salem, as well as Loretta Smith, a a former Multnomah County commissioner. So lots of Democrats on the Republican side. Rep. Ron Noble is running. We've talked to him on this podcast, and there's a couple other Republicans running as well. So yeah, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Carrick. Check out our YouTube channel if you haven't yet. We'd love to have your, you subscribe on the YouTube channel as well as on the audio format. And uh, if you haven't subscribed yet to our newsletter, check that out as well. I'll put links to both in the description of this podcast. And uh, don't forget to give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to this podcast. All right, thanks, everyone. Enjoy the interview with Carrick Flynn. All right, Carrick Flynn, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. We are excited to have you. And before we jump into some questions, I was reading about your background. So you grew up in Vernonia, then you went to U of O, where both Alex and I went, go Ducks. Um, Then you went to Yale Law School, and it seems like you've had an interesting career since then. Can you walk us through the career trajectory that led you to your run for Congress in 2022. Yeah, so I actually, coming out of Renonia, I actually wasn't college bound. Like that was not the, the plan. And then I got a Ford Family Foundation scholarship and I'd also like applied to work at a gas station. And I was like, you know, if I'm getting living expenses to go to college, it's like a job, <laughs> it seemed easier. <laughs> so I went and did that. And I studied economics there because I did have a sense of, you know, I'd grown up really poor. I'm like, well, you know, if, we could, if I could learn this area, maybe I can help lift people out of poverty. And sort of through that process, I got interested in institution building, basically making laws and regulations work so you can get wealthier. And then went to law school to try and pursue that further. And after law school, I was, you know, trying to solve poverty, trying to find the people who are really in the most vulnerable positions in the world. So I ended up working in uh, Kenya and Liberia, Timor-Leste, India, Malaysia, and Ethiopia, doing this sort of work. Some of it was also health policy work and gained a lot of experience from this in terms of, you know, certainly like health knowledge, but institution building knowledge. And then after this, I went on to Oxford briefly and worked in a a center that did like sort of technology and disasters, which was good because this is where I got introduced to pandemic prevention, because there's obviously technologies in terms of like vaccines, but also detection systems that are really relevant to pandemic prevention. And then I went to Georgetown, and while there, I worked with Congress and a little bit of the White House on mostly uh, computer chip manufacturing. So this was uh, to reshore, so to bring the manufacturing back to the United States. And I was able to mark up some bills that, if passed, really should bring like thousands of jobs to Oregon, actually, to this district. Then COVID broke out, and I was like, well, full time. You know, and I left my job, and I went full-time back into the pandemic prevention. I, I was able to write up part of what became Biden's pandemic prevention plan. We were able to get the White House to like it enough that it became known as Biden's pandemic prevention program. It got into the first version of the infrastructure bill. Unfortunately, it was stripped out before the second for cost savings. Were you working for the Biden administration or was this, how did the pl- drafting the plan work? Yeah, so the, the plan worked where, uh, so I left and uh, became like an independent contractor with this philanthropy called the Open Philanthropy. And they funded a team of us, there was probably 12 or 15 of us to take, there's this expert report done by about 125 of the world's best experts on this topic and literally just the technical experts. So we kind of took that and we turned it down into like actual recommendations that were like policy digestible that could become law and into a budget. Hmm. And then we took that and we sold it. Uh, we sold it with, successfully at the White House and unfortunately not as successfully with Congress. And yeah, I think this is, this was like a very uh, important impetus for me deciding to run for Congress was kind of knowing that there's this bill just sort of sitting there 
that's so important because it, it'll work. Like it'll, it'll prevent almost any pandemic, not literally any, but like almost any pandemic from ever happening again. And the idea that we're like not seizing on that and pushing that forward with full force just make, makes no sense to me at all. So that's interesting. So we have a democratically controlled house and a split Senate with a democratic tiebreaker. Do you have a sense of what the holdup is, why the bill hasn't advanced? Yeah, so the holdup, I can describe what it is, but it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> okay. And what it is, and I found this when we were, we were meeting with congresspersons, we were meeting with staffers, because we, you know, we were trying to sell it. We actually, um, there's some, the philanthropy hired some like professional lobbyists, because obviously I, I didn't have experience lobbying, so we could try to do it that way. And what you found was that they were like, no one opposed it. No one disliked it. They were just sort of like, meh. You got this sort of like resounding indifference. Hmm. And I remember I was talking to one of these staffers about this thing. I'm like, you know, this will do, it's all, like, this is so important. And he was like, yes, yeah, it's fine. Uh, are, are any of the PPE jobs you're talking about, are they in my district? And I remember <laughs> thinking like, you know, like in your district alone, I know well over a thousand people died of COVID. In your district alone, I know you lost billions of dollars. Like a few hundred manufacturing jobs, it's just not the same thing. And they're not being bad. It's not like they're bad people. Like, I want to create jobs. Creating jobs is a great thing to do, but they're like uh, prioritization, just completely off. Yeah. Um, so I think you know, it's not it's not malice. It's sort of like failure of reasoning or something. But also the fact that no one like really dislikes it is a good thing. So the price for the bill is it's a little it varies a little bit depending on which version, but it's probably thirty billion dollars. You know, obviously expensive not terribly expensive on government terms, not even a little expensive on pandemic terms. COVID costs 16 trillion right. trillion dollars. This is such a no-brainer sort of across any perspective. I think it's something that if we could get a champion, if I could be the champion or bundle up other champions, we should be able to get this through and we should be safe next time. So last question before I pass to Titus. So at what point are you sitting down and being like, you know what, maybe I should run for Congress. And like, who do you talk to to help figure out whether you're going to do that? Like, what was the decision-making process where you're like, because I think you got in a little late, right? Like you got yeah. in in like February. So how did that, or maybe it was earlier, but how did that all come together? It was not my idea. So I had, I think five or six friends independently of me and independently of one another tell me I had to run. So I moved to Oregon first. because So when COVID broke out, I was still Georgetown for a little while before I left. And like immediately they were like, you can work from home or you can only work from home. And like, <laughs> not to be too mean, but if you can live in DC or you can live in Oregon, you're living in Oregon. So like, I, I moved back home. Both and Alex so, and I have lived in DC and have moved back to Oregon. So we're yeah, it's, like, it's like, you have to have a good reason to be in DC if your alternative is Oregon. So I was living here anyway. And suddenly like this thing pops up and I have a lot of friends over who are like, oh my God, you have to do it. It's this thing, it's underneath you. You're, you know, you have, you're so good at these policy things. You've had so much success, this kind of thing. And I had some friends from like my high school. I had some uh, people from college, uh, law school, certainly from places I worked. And I think on like person number six, I went from like, guys, stop joking to like, oh, okay, maybe I need to think about this. And so I went to other people who I respect who, who were more experienced and older. And every I talked to like 15, 16 people and everyone said like, 100%, you have to do it. I always thought of myself as like a behind the scenes person. You know, I'm not especially, especially extroverted. I'm not political. I'm like solutions oriented. I just want to do the thing correctly. So I didn't think this was a fit, but at some point I was like, well, let's see if we can do it. And at the back of my mind, I will say it was very motivating that like, it's just the bill is still sitting there. Like, you know, maybe I could do this. And if I could, it would make everything worth it. No matter how hard this is, it'd be so worth it. Alex. Interesting. Okay, Carrick. So there has at least been some attacks thrown at you or criticisms from some of your other opponents that you're not from the district or you haven't been in the district long enough. 
Could you just kind of give us a little bit of your background, you know, with the sixth district, kind of your ties to it, relations and all of that. And then after that, we'll dive right into policy. Yeah, absolutely. So the town I am from Vernonia is not actually in the district. It's like slightly outside of it. The, if anyone looks at a district map, they'll see there's like this kind of pie slice district thing going on. And so it's like, yes, I'm not technically from the district, but I'm not sure if like the, I don't know, 10 miles of forest is what people have in mind when they're saying from the district. Also, legally, it's supposed to be um, divided up along what they're calling, uh, I think it's like communities of common concern, some mm-hmm. phrase like that. This district slices through the coast range, a lot of the coast range, actually like, you know, a huge portion of it. It then goes into like the one rolling wine country and it goes down into the valley and it goes up into like the tech part of Beaverton, but also around the government part of Salem. No one's from that. How could you be from like four or five very distinct places? I'm from the coast range. Very few people are, but I'm one of them. Uh, I went to school in the valley. I live in the wine country now. Uh, I, you know, I, I feel as though I've sampled the relevant parts of it. I've worked on the tech industry. I've brought thousands of jobs to the semiconductor industry up in the north. Uh, I've certainly engaged in public service and respected, you know, in the way Salem does it further in the south. Um, haven't lived here long enough. I think, you know, it's like 23, 24 years across these different parts of Oregon feels adequate enough. You'll never know everything enough anyway. There's you know, 700,000 people in the district. You have to listen. Mm-hmm. You always have to listen. And that's maybe the most important part of knowing your district is just like hearing it. So um, kind of building on Vernonia um, and your background there. One of the most animating issues in Oregon politics over the last several decades has been timber politics um, and the devastation that's occurred in these rural communities who were dependent on a timber economy and the fact that we never really replaced that economy with something different. And so what we've seen is essentially sky high unemployment rates, addiction issues, homelessness, houselessness, and all the corresponding effects of an economy that basically crumbled underneath communities. I was wondering what your perspective is, and I guess more specifically, do you believe that the federal government failed these communities? Um, And do you think that there's a solution to this timber problem that the federal government could be a player in solving, and you specifically as a congressperson could play a role in addressing? Um, Or do you see that more as a state issue? Like, how do you think about timber and, and your potential role? First off, I want to say I entirely agree with your characterization of what happened with the, the undermining of timber communities. It, I grew up in that. I grew up in like the spotted owl days when it was just, it was terrible. Um, and I have to say like, you know, supposed to be running as a Democrat here, but like, I think there is a part of me that still feels indignant or angry that there was like the notion that you have these people in the city who are like, oh, look, there's an owl. Isn't it cool? we're going to destroy all of your livelihoods in your community because we like this owl. And if you're like, well, wait, can we talk about this? And like, now we have more votes. You don't matter to us. Like the the pain of that is amazing. And like, you would have talked about being alienated. It's an owl. looks like other owls. Like why, why would we ever do this for that? Um, You know, it's like, it's it's saying like, Oh, I like this exhibit in the zoo more than every, everyone, you know. Um, And I think stepping that back now, and instead of making it, it's issue that became like no, you know, logging at all. Or, you know, like we've got the sort of timber unity group who obviously I'm really sympathetic to emotionally, but his policies are like log everything. There actually are just technical solutions. This is one of those things where if you, if you make it less politics and more like, well, how do you actually just like keep animals alive and forest and like, sorry, and log the forest sustainably, you can do it. And that's like a fan of Kate Brown for everything, but she did do some pretty good negotiations on this and logging jobs are up. The habitats are pretty intact. We could have done this in like late 80s, early 90s. It would have been great. 
And I think that's like very much the right approach. And it's kind of the approach I take to policy generally is like try and be less loud and more like, well, okay, wait, let's look at the parameters. What can we do here? How can we make this work best? Two, two, two quick follow-ups. So um, I ha you, you, you begged the question. So do you think that the placement of the spotted owl um, on the endangered species list was a mistake or are you critiquing the process? Definitely critiquing the process. Okay. Uh, I think the process, how it was played out was terrible and the dialogue around it was really bad. Um, I think the, I've, you know, I've seen both. Like it, it, you live in Vernon people are aware of how you're being de depicted and it's not flattering. It's sort of like backwards, redneck, hillbilly, whatever people who are trying to destroy everything. Uh, it's your life, it's your community. Like, and you know, it's such a, and they're just, you know, they're insulting your injury on top of everything. Um, the, the actual placement of the spotted owl, I don't know. I think probably should be, but like, I think when you put something on an endangered species list, especially if it has like serious economic repercussions, you need to sort of figure out how to keep a minimum viable version of that, which we have now. And I think we maybe could have then. Um, as to the devastation, yeah, Brene was wrecked. Absolutely wrecked when I grew up. Uh, you know, you're talking about homelessness. I was homeless for like seven months after the flood. You know, it took out like half the town's, you know, uh, housing stock and that was it. And like, we didn't have anything to bounce back with, yeah. to rebuild with. Uh, you know, drug addiction, I've lost friends and family to that. Um, I think of the class I started out with in Vernonia, uh, by the age of 22, more of us were dead than graduated from college. Wow. Like, this is just, is just absolutely tore through it. Vernon is a little lucky now, Vernon in particular is a little lucky now and that like in the last 10 years, it's got sort of a tourism economy going now from Portland, uh, but that's not gonna be everywhere. And that's like, that is just luck. So so on that note, my final follow-up on, on Timber is, and it, my caveat is I have not heard a great answer to this. And so it might, there might not be a, an, e there's certainly not an easy answer to this, but can you imagine what a replacement for the timber industry would be some people's answer to that is like oh well it's the timber industry we just need to bring back the timber industry um other people say well automation uh endangered species conservation etc ownership patterns makes that impossible so we need something else you hear tourism sometimes when you think of like you know Ver vernonia aside but there's a lot of communities like vernonia yeah. who are were timber dependent what are potential economic replacement models for those communities um, that we could that we could look at? I think so. I, you can't have tourism everywhere because it's you, there's only like so much tourism you just can't parcel it yeah. appropriately everywhere. Um, I think small manufacturing is pretty good. So there's a lot of industries where um, thinking like advanced uh, medical manufacturing, where like the average like uh, shop or whatever only has like 15 or 20 people. Hmm. So this is something you could do like all sorts of places. Um, I think that now with uh, people have discovered you can work from home, it's plausibly the case that a lot of people who otherwise would be working in Beaverton or whatever, just on a computer, uh, will want to live out in the forest. It's beautiful. Vernonia is absolutely gorgeous. Like, you know, if you can live in Vernonia and have like a, a Beaverton paying job, you're going to live in Vernonia. Totally. Um, and I think that also has a secondary effect, which is if people are making sort of Beaverton technical wages out in Vernonia, then you have like, you know, restaurant industries. You have all the services that pop up around that. Um, I think as we get the Silicon Forest expanded, so if we get like another Intel campus, which we really should have already had, but as we get that thing expanded, uh, you'll have some more com commuter jobs. This was something that already existed uh, back in my day. Um, and those, again, are good jobs, the kind of jobs you don't need a college degree for, pay well. My brother was able to get one of these recently. You know, he's not outside anymore in the weather. You know, he's inside, gets savings. He actually has more money than I do now. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Alex? Very nice. Well, Carrick, I wanted to 
circle back to something you talked a little bit earlier about, which was bringing jobs back here, bringing home supply chains and, and things like that. That was something actually that I got to work on in the Trump administration when I was on USAID was what we called not bring it back necessarily, but at least nearshoring. So uh, instead of bringing it to China, maybe it can go to Mexico, maybe Puerto Rico, at least for some you know, key strategic industries. And I asked the same question to Matt West, actually, but I'm just kind of curious of your philosophy on this in terms of that uh, Democrats and Republicans, both for the most part, at least since the 80s, have been all about free trade, liberalization through trade, all of that sort of stuff. And I really think that that kind of came to stop, at least with the election of Trump, and that people are really starting to think about this in terms of like, what is fair trade? What is ethical trade? Are we outsourcing too many jobs? Just kind of have those conversations around that. Uh, where do you kind of fall in terms of the outsourcing versus the insourcing just on that issue in general? Uh, and obviously that's a large question, but just kind of asking you to riff on it. Uh, my riff is going to be uh, a little bit like the riff on the timber policy, which is I think there's often like a technical type solution to it. Um, with, so with semiconductors and computer chips, especially the like state of the art ones, th those need to be in the U.S. And I'm not just saying that like it's great economically. I mean, really, it's great economically, great jobs. These are also like how you make weapons now. Like all next generation web, weapons technologies are absolutely reliant on these things. And currently like 85% of them are made in Taiwan, in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like, that's like putting oil under Jerusalem. That is not where you want to like a strategic weapons technology. That is very dangerous. So the idea of reshoring them to a place where we have the one uh, supply, but two like secure can like, you know, not export to China into the future or have China take them is potentially very important going forward. Uh, both in terms of like near-term risks, but also in terms of uh, like preventing a buildup of a military capacity that could be dangerous in like 20 years. Um, so these are very obvious. I think some stuff in terms of like uh, medical manufacturing stuff, as we saw during um, COVID, clearly we need some like uh, PPE manufacturing capacity in the US uh, just so we can have it when we need it. Same with vaccines. Um, otherwise, when it comes to just normal consumer electronic type things, I actually, I'm, I'm pretty pro-trade I think it makes sense for the US to focus on our advantages, which is like a very educated workforce and like the intellectual property bit. So having the engineers who design it and then having it uh, made elsewhere. Um, but it depends a little, it's, it's a little bit specific to the industry. I also say a lot of the problems with, uh, that we attribute to uh, manufacturing going abroad is also the problem of like artificially slow economic growth. Mm -hmm. We used to grow like the just like the GDP of the US used to grow at about 1% faster than it does now. And like you can talk to any economist, let's say there's no reason for this to slow down. Like there's no like, you know, it's not like, oh, naturally we've run out of resources. It's like, no, we've just gotten like bogged down institutionally. Hmm. And if you can get like a 1% GDP growth increase and compound it over and over again, there's not going to be a job shortage. And, you know, you, same as you don't necessarily need to worry about like, um, yeah, this is one of the things where I think that taking that approach is a better solution in the long run for most of it. Um, obviously trade's incredibly complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a it's a, a tough issue no matter what side you're approaching it from. Uh, and on the, the chip processing, there was something I wanted to ask you about, which you mentioned earlier too, which is that, uh, of course, Intel had announced just, well, I guess I was about to say a couple of weeks ago, but it's that's been at least a couple of months that they were going to invest at least $20 billion in the state of Ohio, building new chip manufacturing plants, building new facilities. I imagine creating a lot of new jobs. Many of those are probably high paying jobs. Obviously that will have a lot of benefits for the areas around them. Uh, so we had Angela Wilhelms on the podcast and she kind of talked about some of the 
issues around that. And one of them I think was just as simple as like, just in terms of Oregon zoning laws, like in terms of the facility they needed to build, we don't even offer corporate plots basically that can go up to that, that size. Uh, from your perspective, just how do you, you know, how do, how do you bring those jobs back to Oregon instead of them sort of going out of state, especially from kind of a federal level, right? Like, I think it's a little bit easier for the state legislature and the governor to address those, but obviously that's something you've been campaigning on too, is bringing back jobs to the yeah. state or bringing jobs like that to the state. So what, what's kind of, what's your kind of approach on that? So I was, so obviously like something like a $20 billion uh, plant has a lot of people behind it, but I was one of those, you know, I was one of the people that was, that sort of was involved in pushing that forward. Uh, and in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is going to be amazing when this lands in Beaverton. Uh, yeah. And then uh, when they're like, oh, we're not going to like slightly rezone a plot of land for a $20 billion fab. You know, those moments you would like, just like shake your laptop or something. When you, <laughs> I could not believe that. And even now, like the idea you'd let like a zoning thing get away with it, it's a $20 billion fab. And again, I have to, I'm just to emphasize this again, so many of those jobs do not require a college degree. And they really do pay. My brother's got like enough for a family. He's got savings. He's got like all sorts of things. He never could have done that when he's painting houses. That wasn't even an option. And you're talking like tens of thousands, at least tens of thousands of jobs like that. How could you ever throw that away for, for a few? Anyways, this is one of those like, you're going to hit like an emotional core of an argument. Um, I don't think there's any justification for that, uh, for the land use concerns. I think a lot of, there's a lot of things Oregon does with land use that's insane. And that causes a lot of unnecessary damage and harm to people. Um, I, as best I could, I would try from a federal level or maybe just from an influential level to like <laughs> tell people, just shake them until they like not do that anymore. <laughs> Land use reform opportunities at the federal level, they're not, they're not for this sort of thing, but I, I'm also fond of them. Uh, the Biden administration is offering uh, or it's like making contingent certain like community grants on mm. um, the rezoning of certain like municipal areas or city areas. I think that's great. I think that's a fantastic policy. I'd love to like help codify that in the law. Um, there's some other things put together by, there's um, a congressman from New York, uh, New York's 15th, um, Richie Torres, who's trying to do a federal level land use reform uh, thing. I've, I've mm, talked to him a couple times about it. What? I, he said that's interesting. I just saw that you were endorsed by uh, Congressman Torres on Twitter. Yeah, we've been chatting a lot. Uh, it's one of those ones, what somebody like put us together because then we had some common interest in, so he grew up very poor mm. uh, and also housing insecure and I grew up poor and housing insecure. So it's like we started talking and then we just caught on really well you know when you like hit someone you're like oh i can work with you so i think this is something i would love to push forward yeah land use is one of the so i did so much institution building and institutional restructuring abroad and like how this can get people out of poverty and we're not in poverty now but we're trying to be because we have so many of these terrible institution things and land use is right up near the top of that i yeah i'm glad we brought this up because i would like to hear your perspective on land use planning system so the proponents of oregon's land use planning system will say the reason why we don't look like dallas texas and have massive urban sprawl, suburban sprawl, is because we've been really tight on how we allow people to develop our lands. It's the reason why we've been able to preserve so much farmland and timberland. Um, the critique is on the other side, right? So, you know, that's the, they say one of the reasons why it's really expensive to build housing in Oregon is because there's not enough land, et cetera. So what, you, you seem to have some critiques about Oregon's land use planning system. Can you lay those out for us? What, what challenges you've identified in the system? I actually, so I haven't been to Dallas. Um, we haven't been to Dallas? No, I have been to Dallas. I think Dallas, Ben may have been referencing Houston. Houston, sorry, okay. Texas cities. Houston, yeah, is, Houston yeah, is, yeah, is the yeah. one where you literally see like a like a two-story house next to like a 20-foot sky. It, it literally doesn't make any sense. It's very interesting. <laughs> 
So what I will say is when I was in Dallas, I was uh, visiting family of the family. They had like a sort of McMansion thing and this like street and McMansion things, which is not necessarily my style, but the house is enormous and it costs like nothing. Hmm. But well, they're really happy with it. And I think a lot of people would be really happy with this. And you could never in a million years do this <laughs> anywhere near Portland. Just wouldn't happen. The zoning, just, you know, like the lot size things wouldn't work. The homeless rate in Dallas and actually anywhere in Texas, despite the fact that it has, um, you know, a very large uh, immigrant population of very poor people coming across. So, you know, who presumably would frequently be homeless for a while, uh, just as they sort of uh, got up um, into the system and were able to get employment. Uh, it's very low. Now, Portland's got the second highest homeless rate in the U.S. It's got something like four something. I, this number's not right. Something like four percent of the population of Oregon is homeless. Wow. This isn't. This isn't normal. This isn't okay. And you know, when you're saying like, "Oh, the solution's going to be insert very complicated social program," it's like, okay, so there's homeless people. They literally don't have a place to live, and there's a very small housing stock. You have to have more housing. Literally, just it's it's almost just math. Like you have to have more housing stock to house people. And there's other problems, like obviously addiction treatment is great. There's you know, other social programs I support, but you, you have to have more housing stock. And if you can't build it because of zoning ordinances, it's kind of, um, then you're not going to get that. And you're going to perpetuate this housing crisis. And I, I think maybe I'm softer on homelessness than a lot of people are. I, the thing is, I think people can get angry about homelessness and not care that much because they've gotten themselves angry. I think if you've been homeless, it is so, you're so anxious all the time, you're so vulnerable. You're so like exposed all the time. And even now I can kind of feel it. It's like one of those things that like sat enough that it like left a, a dent. People don't do this on purpose and it's not okay to sort of force them into a situation where they literally don't have houses to even live in. Uh, and to do this because of sort of abstract notions about, you know, um, you know, the niceness of single family units on certain sides of plots, I think it's really inappropriate. Mm. Nick Kristoff just wrote a piece on his Substack where he was basically like, it was really interesting. He was basically like, we talk about all the causes of homelessness and he talks about, you know, addiction and mental health issues, et cetera. But he's like, those challenges exist in lots of other places in the country and they don't have the homelessness rates that we have here. So he, what, what he basically says he believes is like the, the key critical component is a lack of housing supply yeah. and that all of our resources should be, uh, not all, but we should focus our resources on expanding housing supply and then treat the sort of tertiary or other causes yeah. um, secondarily. It sounds like you kind of agree with that. I agree with him entirely. And I also would say that there, there's some people that follow this up with, then we need an enormous amount of money to build public housing. It's like, actually, no, you don't. You literally just need to rezone, which is free. And then a bunch of housing pops up because you can suddenly build it. Uh, this is like like the idea of also like paying for this is you know it's like you set a bad law and then you're like throwing tax money to like force yourself over your own bad law it's like no, just fix the law it's a much better system so um semi-related to this um i do want to talk a little bit about drugs and and the addiction crisis um oregon made national headlines when we passed measure 110 um which essentially decriminalized all drugs um and did a few other things uh, there's some people who say that should be a national model and we should push measure 110 at the national level. There's other people say, who say it was an abject failure and it only made things worse. Um, how, do you, how do you think about drug re uh, decriminalization? Um, and do you think that Oregon has unlocked some potential for a national model or do you think it's too early to tell or what do you think? I, yeah, this is that uh, annoying technical thing again, which is like, <laughs> 
it was say like I don't know how something's gonna work. And it's like, well, I could try it across the whole thing or I can do it to like 150th of it. It's like, well, I'm gonna do it just a little bit and watch. And even if you said to get like a slightly ambiguous result, you're like, okay, maybe I'll try the next one and see what happens there. Um, I'm not sure which way it's gone. I think um actually I just haven't looked that much in the data of how it's gone in Oregon. Uh if it the homelessness thing, which might just be a coincidence, like the real explosion of homelessness might be a coincidence. Uh, if it's not, then there's some concern that it might not have gone well. Um, I do like that there are fewer people spending time in like jail and in prison. I think that's a huge waste. Uh, and so things that like drive that down, I'm generally very fond of. Um, huge waste, very bad for people, very bad for families and communities. People don't come out of prison nice. <laughs> like, you know, I've, I've say I lost friends to prison in the sense of they went to prison and then I don't want to talk to them anymore and they're back out because they're very hard and, you know, it's like a whole different person. Yeah. Um, as far as, yeah, I think experimentation is the right approach. If I were in Oregon, I, uh, sorry, if I were in Oregon, if I were like in say Washington who hasn't done this yet, I would also maybe not go full decriminalization in one motion. It's a very bold move. I feel like I would sort of like inched up. Uh, certainly you see what opioids do even with them being illegal. The idea of risking them kind of becoming more widespread is pretty terrifying. So um, pot potentially low hanging fruit follow up. Congressman Cliff Bentz Oregon's lone Republican member of its congressional delegation was actually the leader of the Republican opposition on the House floor to a marijuana legalization bill that did pass the House. Do you support marijuana legalization at the national level? I think so. I think that one's proven itself to be okay. Like that, you know, you're, you're talking about the experiments in enough places now that it seems to have borne out as well, uh, like that it, it doesn't have especially negative effects. I mean, I'm sure it has some, but uh, it also gets a lot of people not in jail over a long period of time. Um, I could, yeah, I could be convinced otherwise, but I'd be really surprised if it didn't make sense to decriminalize marijuana. Um, it's pretty innocuous it's, <laughs> just as, as a substance. Um, and in so many states, sorry? yeah, I was just gonna say so many states have already done it. Like it almost feels like this is inevitable and it's just a question of like when we <laughs> press the button. So I can also actually, this is bad podcast content, but I'll make a nerdier point, which is I think <laughs> better for the federal government to not have these sorts of things criminalized anyway and let the states experiment. So it include like a lot of the, the drugs like this. So if the federal government wanted to decriminalize all drugs, I would think that's a good move because then like Oregon or Washington or different states can experiment and hopefully from this process say like, oh no, let's not do that or whatever. Whereas if there's this federal level thing, it's harder to, to do that. And like with the marijuana now, it's, it's sort of legalized, but it's also still illegal. And so you get these weird shenanigans with like the finances around uh, right. these operations and stuff, mm -hmm. which I don't think are ideal at all. So yeah, I, I, it's a slightly different point of whether or not it should happen on the ground than you know how it should be done uh, structurally. But I would like the federal government to get out of certain things and allow for experimentation on the state level. If you had states' rights on your podcast bingo card, congratulations. We just uh, we just checked the box. Oh, and I just lost the primary like that. Oh, no. <laughs> you, have, you have to use federalism. That, oh, yeah. There you go. I'm, I'm helping with your campaign branding. Yeah. Uh, it depends on the thing. I think the federal law matters on lots of things. <laughs> no, fair enough. Okay, so the next, the next two questions I'm going to ask about are, are money and politics. And yeah. my first question is, so at least uh, according to, to news reports that You've been the beneficiary of a super PAC that's been spending uh, quite a bit of money in the, the primary race. And uh, Ben has actually been a recipient of a lot of those ads, uh, both on, oh, yeah. on Facebook and then also, uh, Carrick, also in the mail. If, you, if you're watching on YouTube, these, oh, yeah. <laughs> these, these have been in my mail inbox over the last, uh, last few weeks. 
So cl clearly the, the targeting is going well for the super PAC. And uh, according to the this article from Politico too, that Sam Bankman-Fried is basically the person spending at least most of the money behind the super PAC. For viewers who don't know who that is, he's a crypto billionaire. He's the founder of FTX Exchange, which is a pretty big cryptocurrency exchange. So I have two questions for you on that. One, why do you think the super PAC is supporting you specifically? And then two, uh, do you consider yourself to be a crypto guy? Mm. So the first, the second one's really easy, which is absolutely not. I don't, I'm not a crypto guy. I'm not especially interested in crypto. Don't know very much about crypto. I keep getting asked questions now about crypto that I do not understand. Um, it's like I have a lot of friends who got into it, and I think I tried for a minute to see why it was cool, and then I just didn't care and moved on. Like the blockchain technology seems interesting enough, and like seems good for like financial institutions to use. But in the same way as financial institutions use other things, I find boring and don't care about the. Second thing, the why the why I'm being sponsored is actually not like a mystery at all. So there's like two packs. One's called Guarding Against Pandemics, and the other one's called um, Protect, Protect Our Future. And Guarding Against Pandemics called Guarding Against Pandemic. It sponsored 15 something politicians, including sitting representatives who have like really good pandemic policy. Mm -hmm. um, the Protecting Our Future has also done this, where it's uh, found people who have really good pandemic policy. It's said explicitly that it's sponsoring people who are, have good pandemic policy. I've been mm -hmm. doing pandemic stuff since 2015. I wrote part of the pandemic protection program. I've got actually a really strong reputation kind of in the pandemic prevention community. You know, solve for X. It's, it's, it's like, I don't think there's any sort of mystery. So the, the, there's this Politico article that implies that this guy, Sam Bankman-Fried, is, is trying to change an SEC crypto regulation thing have you i so first of all we should we should say for the audience i think most people probably know this but you as a candidate right are legally not allowed to talk to the super PAC or, coordinate yeah. <laughs> or so did you make like so i guess i'm curious with you know have you made public statements on crypto or something that would lead people to believe that this was related to that or is it just because he's a crypto guy or do you have any idea what that article was about so I can do you one better. Uh, okay. Not only have I not made any public statements about SEC anything, I would not be qualified to because I'm not sure what you're talking about. <laughs> I assume, yeah, I mean, crypto stuff, I'm sure, I'm sure there's regulation stuff that's happening. Uh, let's see, here's the thing. If this actually came out for, to be clear, I, I'm being flipped. If this came down for a vote, like if there's actually a bill going forward, I would do what I do with other subjects where I don't actually know that much about the topic, which is I would give it, like I would actually take it very seriously. I would research it. I'd make sure I understood the position and I would make sure it conforms with, you know, the values I'm trying to promote of like prosperity and stability for everybody. But in its current state, it's it's not, it seems very unimportant on the scale of things. And I'm not, I'm not prioritizing enough to, to sort of advance it forward. My, I, I'm just speculating. My guess is that, because, you know, I saw the story too. It's a fun story, right? It's like, oh, here's this like secret thing that's happening. They're buying a congressman. There's a thing on Twitter. Someone made a, like a, they took like a poster from the Manchurian candidate and they made like, they had like Sam's head on it and they had like my, you know, on this like thing and like, oh, he's a Manchurian candidate. It's like, that's hilarious. Like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to print that out and put it on my wall. Um, so in general, so let's take, let's take this super PAC out of it. Let's take you out of it. These people are sending out all these mail pieces, all these Facebook ads, and it's totally uncoordinated with you. You're not allowed to say like, this is what I believe. I agree with what they're saying about me or I don't. Um, obviously because of the Citizens United decision, there's very little regulatory 
capability for the government to stop this or alter this or put safeguards around this. And I think my understanding, and maybe one or both of you can correct me on this, my understanding is like the only actual mechanism to change that would be a constitutional amendment or a Supreme Court decision that overturns the previous precedent, which seems incredibly unlikely in the near future, given the composition of the court. Would you support a constitutional amendment to, you know, limit campaign contributions at the federal level, for example? Or do you think that super PACs play a role in the democratic ecosystem of electing candidates? Oh, no, I'd absolutely support a constitutional amendment. Um, oh, really? I wasn't super fond of the campaign finance system, like before I ran. And seeing it up close, it's not, it's, it's not better, it's much worse. It's really, it's really bad. Uh, it's, this is clearly not the right way to do it. Yeah. Uh, if there were opportunities even now just actually within Congress to kind of like bite around the edges of Citizen United to make it a little better, I'd be very happy to get involved with that. Even with the the PAC now, I'm, the, the thing I would, I will say the thing I'm most worried about with money in politics and like super PACs is like uh, influence from, you know, like the coal lobby or, you know, these sorts of, you know, self-interested things that would corrupt a system. Corrupt a system. The pro I don't like the process that's allowing it to happen, but you know, getting support from like a group of people who are trying to prevent the next pandemic seems, you know, when I'm trying to prevent the pandemic, at least seems like the best version of the thing. And there's also a little bit of a, you have to, you have to work within the system you have. When I go to Congress, I'm going to have to work within that screwy system as well. And I think at some point you just have to like resign yourself to, to not liking how it works, but trying to do as much and as best you can within that. Mm, that makes sense. Uh, Alex? Yeah, so Carrick, uh, next we'll move to what is jokingly our politics section, but uh, I guess this is a little bit more of a background question too. So uh, you are a complete political outsider, uh, at least from what you told us in your bio. You've never run for public office. Uh, it doesn't look like you've engaged much with the local or with the national parties. Uh, you're, you know, hadn't run in this district before. Uh, you declared, what was it in, in February, as Ben said, so I mean, pretty quick turnaround, like you are literally the definition of an outsider. What has that been like for your first campaign? I mean, you're getting national attention with like the articles in Politico. Some of the other campaigns have attacked you. I know that the debate last night, which when this publishes was about a week ago, got a little bit hot too. Uh, what has it just been like to run as a political outsider? I'm curious of like, like what are your thoughts on running so far? Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess political outsider. I feel, okay, well, I guess there's different ways of thinking about that. I'm not a politics person, so I'm very much a political outsider in that. And even when I was in DC, I wasn't a politics person. Like, you know, there's politics people and policy people. Like I was a policy person. And actually one of the things I'm most proud of when I was in DC was a bill I was able to mark up. There was a Republican bill working with a bunch of Republican staffers that I think was really good. And I think it did have really good consequences for Oregon and for job creation. Uh, and I didn't feel bad at all that it was a Republican bill. I was very happy to be involved. Um, hmm. I think coming to McMinnville, I'm, I don't feel like I, I haven't felt any hostility. Well, you know, someone got, I uh, was, I think just trying to do a political thing last night, but um, actually talking to people and local officials and stuff, I felt really warmly welcomed. Um, learned a lot, people really happy. Um, I, you know, actually I've had some, some any sort of problem and certainly the population here has been great. I kind of expected more, um, random so i used to knock on doors for political campaigns I, like you'd get yelled out there and i actually knock it <laughs> like, so it's kind of nice because i kind of expected that if i like did that here i'd be yelled at but like it was really nice and it's been great had some amazing conversations people like let me bother them about like the very specifics of like you know what their industry needs and like mm -hmm. in depth and i'll say well where's that supply chain go from you know where's that come from 
Um, that's been really, really warm in that sense. Um, got, I've been able to get some local endorsements. Um, no, I think it's, it's been okay. Um, I'm not a politics person, but I don't necessarily, I guess I don't feel like an outsider. Hmm. Uh, I didn't know that you were living in McMinnville. That's where both of my parents were raised. Uh, it's a great town. And what I will say about McMinnville is it punches above its weight class in terms of food. Uh, there's, there's some great restaurants in McMinnville. Um, so when I was in DC, I was like, all right, I'm, it's like, all right, I'm not doing this. I moved back to Oregon. I'm like, we're in Oregon. And I'm like, well, you know, Vernon is a bit far out. There's not that much stuff around there. It's a beautiful forest area, but it's like, ah, yeah, maybe somewhere different. Most of my family is in like Beaverton. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to be in like the crowded, kind of like the country. I'm like, oh, McMinnville. It's like this perfect, it's a lovely town. It's just like this perfect in between. It's got all the stuff you need. It's kind of like quiet, beautiful. You can get to the coast range in like 20 minutes. Yep. All the vineyards. Uh, so uh, highly endorsed McMinnville. Great place. Um, so uh, the last question, and maybe it's a two-part question. We asked Matt West a similar question. We've asked a variation of this question before, but I think it's helpful particularly for people to get to understand how a first-time candidate thinks. Um, are there current or former elected members of Congress or the United States Senate who you look at and you're like, that? not that you admire them necessarily, but that's how you would want to um, approach your role as a congressman or um, as a member of Congress, like um, people who you feel like have done it right or approached it right um, that you admire. Anyone jump to mind for that? Not in a strong way. I'm sorry. This is this is. A, I'm going to give you a terrible answer. No, okay. uh, the person who jumped to mind, which is not necessarily meeting your criteria. Uh, again, I so I've talked to a bunch of Congress people when I was doing the lobbying stuff, both with semiconductors and later, later with pandemics. I've met a lot of them. Um, I've never been as impressed by anyone as I was about Richard Torres, Richie Torres. Now, Richie Torres is like younger than me and yeah. just elected. So I should not be referring to him as like an, uh, somebody I'm looking up to, but I will say uh, he's the kind of person I want to learn from in real time working with. Um, and I'm very impressed by how he's so sharp, like just like so clean, like clear thinking. Uh, and I really respected that. Um, I always, worst answer still, um, I really liked Obama's rhetorical style and the way he actually genuinely wanted to do the bipartisanship thing, at least the way he'd spoken that. Uh, and maybe he didn't mean it, but I naively do, which is to say, like, I'm not saying he didn't mean it. I'm saying if he didn't mean it, then I'm the one who naively does. And then I actually <laughs> like the idea of, uh, of it being about solving the problem. And I do like the idea of like, guys, let's, we're all mad. Let's calm down. Let's talk. We've got some problems. Like if we just turn down the yelling so we can, start talking and start hearing each other. There's some stuff at least. It may not be perfect solutions, but there's some stuff we can do. And uh, that's like the approach I want to take. Um, let me, let me here, I'll do my, my second part of the question. If someone else comes up, feel free to bring them in. But um, this was easier during the, during the um, run up to the 2020 election. It was like, are you uh, an Elizabeth Warren Democrat? Are you a Joe Biden Democrat? Are you a Bernie Sanders Democrat? Um, and now, obviously, I mean, all of those lines are very uh, um, malleable, and I don't think there's like clear divisions within the Democratic Party. But I am curious, like, do you see yourself as from a wing of the party or having a certain approach? Um, or I guess, how would you describe yourself as a Democrat um, to voters who are wondering, you know, what kind of uh, legislator you'd be? I've got an even worse answer. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm like not answering your question dead on at all because it's hard. No, I think so it, the, the whole point is to like that I find easier. Um, <laughs> the nearby question I find easier is okay. So I have three brothers. Okay. All three of my brothers they work with their hands for a living, but they're like skilled. They're like you know skilled craftsmen. Um, when you work with them, what you discover is they're like 
they measure twice, they cut once, they know exactly, they see the problem, they know how to fix it with the job, they have all the tools. If you know you want to help them, they're just like, sure, hop on this thing, they don't care who you are, they're just like getting the job done. And it's really just about what you need to do to get it done correctly and quickly. And like, I like to imagine myself as being like a craftsman uh, within Congress. That's what I want to do. I'm not interested in debating. I don't, this for me, this is not, you know, a debate club. This is like wood shop. I like, actually just like to solve the problem and get the thing done uh, mm. as best I can. And if anyone wants to work with me on any of these projects, I don't care. Like the, the point is to actually get the project done. It's not the sort of like um, symbolism around that or like, you know, having a team or not having a team. Uh, and that's, that's more the approach I, I take. That is super revealing and helpful. Um, so our, our, our last, last question, as we ask all, all guests is first, thank you again for taking the time to come on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation. And if there's folks out there who you pique their interest, they want to get involved in your campaign or they want to reach out to you, um, what's the best way for someone to, to be in touch? Oh, so there's, uh, it's called reach out at carrickflynnfororegon.com. That's like the sort of general email. And then we filter from there to like the, the best approach. If you're interested in like volunteering, you can, uh, there's also like a volunteering form on the website. And if you're interested in donating, there's uh, an act blue link you can use uh, for the website. Always welcome. Even small donations, very welcome. And it's, it's carrickflynn.com. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, carrickflynnfororegon.com. And my name, I should spell my name. C-A-R-R-I-C-K-F-L-Y-N-N. Perfect. Cool. Well, Carrick, thank you again for coming on and uh, we great. hope to talk to you again soon. This is great. Thank you so much.